This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Let me say hello to our guest, Peter Betts. Hello, Peter. Hello, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Hope you were well. Well, so far. Let's hope it lasts the next half hour. That's all we need. Uh, Peter Betts is Mr. History uh, in Fulton and Montgomery counties, a professor emeritus uh, at Fulton Montgomery Community College. For many years, he was county historian in Fulton County. He grew up in Amsterdam, New York, and knows a lot about Amsterdam. And he writes a bi-weekly column on local history for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. And we're going to talk with uh, Pete about uh, some of his columns or the subjects of his columns. The first one has an interesting tagline, the murderer who couldn't wait to be hung. Who was that guy? Well, his name uh, was Edward Earl, supposedly, although nobody was ever quite sure if that was really his real name or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was very much a real person anyway. And uh, the story goes, uh, I I should preface this by saying, whenever people talk to me about my columns, they say, hey, you haven't had any murders lately. Let's have have a good murder. Well, you know, the truth is, at this point, I've done so many of these old-time murders that we're just about almost running out of them. So I was overjoyed when I accidentally discovered Edward Earle. Uh, and this is the story of uh, Hamilton County murderer Edward Earle, uh, who, as I said, uh, seemed to be throughout the whole procedure quite anxious to uh, be hung. And it started the August 25, 25, 1881 Gloversville Standard newspaper, mm-hmm. related most of what was known or believed to be known about this rather mysterious man who called himself Edward Earle. Mm-hmm. And Edward Earle lived in Sageville. Do you know where Sageville was? Having a clue. Okay, Sageville in Hamilton County is now Lake Pleasant. Oh. And uh, and uh, he had, back in February, he had uh, murdered his unfaithful wife with a stolen tannery scraper. And uh, she was about to water a horse. So, you know, some people blamed the horse, but there was a lot more to it than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the account begins by explaining that in 1857, a young man who gave his name as Edward Earle and said he came from the South made an appearance in the town of Benson in Hamilton County. He was a blacksmith and was given a cordial welcome in his new home. Apparently, Bob, they needed a blacksmith. Well, yes. It was soon noticed, however, that his habits were dissipated. But being an excellent mechanic... Little attention was paid to this. Mm-hmm. On January 18th, 1868, he married Mary Burgess of the town of Hope. Mm-hmm. Earl and his wife did not appear to live happily together, although they did have three children. Now, this is a late coming, but he was dissipated. What does that mean? Well, uh, I guess it means he drank. <laughs> I see. So I was thinking about but I wasn't sure. Anyhow, uh, he and his wife did not appear to live happily together, although they did have three children, one of whom survived. But there was no serious difficulty between them until 1870, no wait, this is around 1860, uh, this is a misprint. But anyhow, he came home unexpectedly one day 
it must be uh, in 1871, I believe, mm-hmm. and found his wife with one man, a man named George Brown, a logger, under circumstances permitting no doubt that she was an adulterous wife. Uh-huh. Their life together after this was a stormy one, and after one particularly serious encounter, Earl was sentenced mm-hmm. to three and a half years in Danamora. With Earl at least temporarily out of the way, Mary Burgess Earl and George Brown set up housekeeping together, living happily in Sin and Sageville, at least until Edward Earl could return. And return he did. Mm-hmm. On February 19, 1881, Mary Earl's body was discovered by Brown lying in the snow in front of the barn behind his house. At about the same moment, Edward Earl calmly knocked on the door of Sageville's constable, George Pratt, Mm -hmm. confessed his crime to the shocked officer and asked Mm -hmm. to be placed in custody. The Gloversville Standard described the murder mm-hmm. weapon as, quote, a murderous-looking instrument with a blade more than a foot in length. Earl mm-hmm. was taken to the Johnstown Jail and kept there and was indicted for murder in the first degree. He was returned to Hamilton County for trial, and probably due to the remoteness of, remoteness of Sageville, only one reporter attended the proceedings. Mm-hmm. The Rochester Union and Advertiser, under the headline, Where is Sageville, complimented the Utica Herald for sending the reporter. And it also informed readers, and I quote, Sageville consists of four dwellings, one store, a hotel, the courthouse, jail, and the county clerk's office. Hmm. There is not one lawyer in the entire Hamilton County and only one doctor. Only three prisoners have been in jail there in three years. And today the jailer, Honest John Rourke. Honest John Rourke is the jailer? Yes. Okay. Uh, today he is going to hunt deer. And according to the Herald's reporter, he will not be obliged to lose sight of his jail to do so. Edward Earl's attitude toward both his crime and his fate were unusual, to say the least. When the sentence of death by hanging was announced at the conclusion of his trial, Earl smiled and thanked everyone involved, stating he thought the verdict was fair and the only logical verdict that the jury could have rendered. But he also claimed he didn't see himself actually as being guilty of murder. When asked why by the judge, he replied, I believe... When a man is compelled to do an act like that to wipe out some disgrace or injury he has received, he ought not to receive the blow. And for that reason, I opposed my counsel and offered to plead guilty in the beginning. But I was not allowed to do so. I could have saved all this time and trouble if they would have just permitted it. I look upon death as the greatest blessing that could now overtake me. Hmm. In the following days, Earl wrote a series of goodbye letters to various friends. One very revealing missive was quoted in the October 20th, 1881 Weekly Saratogian newspaper, in which Earl stated in part, I feel elated in the prospect of soon becoming an inhabitant of another world. 
Mm-hmm. Although I must say, I don't admire the route I am compelled to take to get there. Mm. I have an engagement with death and shall meet him with a smile that will make him turn away, thinking that I am not the one he had sent for. As to my upcoming performance, I have not yet got the hang of it. The hang of it? (laughs) It must be the death of me, in fact. Oh, dear. Good sense of humor there. I guess he does. Yeah. Uh, Truly is uh, Peter Gallo's humor is what we're doing. Very good, very good. Uh, Earl wasn't kidding about accepting his fate, and probably hadn't been since he knocked on Constable Pratt's door. The morning of his execution, Earl was even impatient with Hamilton County Sheriff Mitchell. Earl made frequent inquiries of the sheriff as to the cause of the delay, and Sheriff Mitchell commenced his preparations one hour earlier than intended simply to please Earl. Earl's last words were, if any of you ever meet my little girl, please give her at least one kind word. It may do her good and won't cost you anything. (laughs) The Utica Herald reporter agreed, concluding, those great brawny-fisted lumbermen will speak many kind words to little June Earl she and they may both be the better for it. Wow. Wonder whatever happened to June Earl. Well, you know, I didn't pursue it at that point, but uh, that is a good that is a good question. Well, I don't know. Edward Earl, the man who couldn't wait to be hung. Quite a story, Peter. <laughs> yeah. It's the only one of its kind I've ever come across. But. All right. We're talking with Peter Betts, writes a local history uh, column for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. More with Peter in uh, just a moment. Do want to mention our GoFundMe drive, which uh, keeps the Historian's podcast in operation. You can uh, donate online. Uh, go to GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash the historians and uh, they'll walk you through it how you how you can can donate online you can also uh, contribute by mail uh, make a check out to me bob cutmore and send to bob cutmore at 125 horstman drive scotia new york 12302 Peter Betts is uh, our guest on the podcast uh, now. Uh, He is uh, telling us some tales from uh, Fulton and and Hamilton and maybe even Montgomery County history. He collects a lot of these uh, stories and and writes about them in the Leader Herald newspaper. Now, uh, the next story, as I understand it, Peter, you are going to tell us about Walter Porter, who was the absconding drummer. You mean a drummer like that kind of drummer? <laughs> no. 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 Now, well, now, I think you're old enough to know what I mean when I say Yeah, a, a salesperson. In fact, <laughs> exactly. uh, the uh, the radio station that's uh, still kind enough to uh, uh, carry Historian's podcast, uh, WCSS in Amsterdam, I remember back in the day when I first was working there in the 1960s, their stationery had this line drawing, I think, of, you know, a, a depiction of, of a Native American or something like that. But the slogan for the radio station was, Drummers Along the Mohawk. Ah, that's, that's a good one. 
Well, I thought of a similar thing there. You know the old book, Drums Along the Mohawk. We do. Which that is, of course, analogy is taken from. I was always thinking of, I was going to write a book about <coughs> the various hobos and bums that used to come around, and I was going to call it Bums Along the Mohawk. <laughs> right. Well, that's good. But that never happened, and it's probably just as well. Well, that's true. In fact, I don't want to go on a detour, but <clears throat> I had a one little story, this thing material that I write about a hobo jungle and so forth, but I really didn't find a lot of stuff about it in, in the newspapers. But uh, maybe you've uh, got better sources. Well, I, I do think one time, sometime, I will probably write a, a, a little piece about these people, these traveling men, because there certainly were. And I find uh, you know, sometimes when I'm researching other things, right in the very next column, there's you know something about a few of them. They certainly did exist. Yeah. All right. Well, so the drummer we're talking about here was a salesman, is that? Yes, he was. And uh, to read what I've put down here, if younger readers immediately wonder what a drummer was, that's little surprise considering the only drummers drumming these days are in bands. <laughs> but in our old times, a drummer made little noise unless he laughed or sneezed, but he was still essential to Americans' business activities. The term drummer was slang for describing a man who essentially drummed up sales for companies he represented as a traveling salesman covering a defined territory. He appeared regularly at retail stores, serviced their accounts, displayed new products, and took their orders for his company's products back to the home office. In the language of the day, he was a commercial traveler. Mm -hmm. engaged in a respected profession, one in which thousands of such traveling men in the decades before computers made uh, calls and was an essential sure. link between uh, local merchants and the faraway manufacturers. He was a roadman like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. There's a perfect example. Uh, local retailers plus hotel and rooming house operators depended on regular visits from the drummer for their daily bread. But for some questionable reason, Gloversville-based drummer Walter C. Porter, although seemingly successful, chose to wear out his welcome and be drummed out of the business. Oh dear. Gloversvillians, believing that they knew Porter well, were astonished when they opened their December 8, 16th, 19-2 Daily Leader to discover, and I quote, Walter C. Porter of this city is wanted by police in Philadelphia, Syracuse, Albany, and Buffalo. The Philadelphia charge being grand larceny in appropriating about $2,000 worth of sterling silverware consigned to him as agent for the Hartford Sterling Company of that city. Those who know him believe he will be able to explain things. <clears throat> well, perhaps, but it wouldn't have proved difficult explaining why he pawned the Hartford Company's $2,000 <clears throat> silverware samples mm -hmm. and also Albany jeweler H.B. Kemi's additional $400 worth before going on the lamb. Mm. Now, we must stop and say, what do we know about this, Walter Porter? What do we know? After absconding with his employer's sterling wear, he apparently went on a toot. 
<laughs> a resume no. of his adventures was printed in the February 26, 1903 Syracuse Evening Herald. Now, Peter, the toot is something like the dissipation of the last guy you were talking about. Yes, yeah, yes. Right. Definitely uh, liquor involved. Okay. Porter started out last fall with a couple of trunks of silverware belonging to the firms he represented. This is in Syracuse, okay? Mm-hmm. He went on a drunk here immediately cashing a worthless $50 check at the Yates Hotel, where he lived very well for a number of days. Then he disappeared, turning up in Buffalo, where his adventures read like the pages of a romance novel. Hmm. He had already pawned the silverware, had lots of money in his pocket. He had $700 stolen by a bartender in a gambling house here. He got mixed up in in an attempted grave robbery, was scared out of town by a clever mm. scheme worked out by the bartender's friends masquerading as policemen who came close to scaring Porter into an early grave. <laughs> Porter is well known in Syracuse and has been coming for a number of years. He lives in Gloversville, where his romantic marriage via elopement to Catherine Sweet, the daughter of a prominent citizen, caused much sensation in 1900. Mm. But there was more. Okay. The February 25th, 1903 Albany Evening Journal announced that at the end of the December 1902 uh, fiscal year, it was discovered that more money was missing from the Sterling and Kemi Company's accounts. Porter's method of defrauding his employers was simple. <clears throat> By making sales and then collecting the money for the goods, but then keeping the retailer's money rather than forwarding it back to the home office. Hmm. When the two firms issued their monthly bills to the retail merchants for goods delivered, they were informed the monies had already been paid to Porter. (laughs) Yes. It was by that time long gone. Uh. The explanation of Walter Porter's downfall was a common one in those times, but it wasn't lack of income. According to the newspaper, Porter was employed by Mr. Kemi at a salary of $1,200 a year plus expenses. Mm -hmm. His salary from the Hartford Sterling Company was twice that, and he had other sources of income as well. Unfortunately, wine, women, and song were Porter's downfall. It is said he had a free, easy way of spending money, especially on the fair sex. I see. As for his wife, it is alleged she has not heard a word from him since December 1st. Catherine Porter's prominent parents back in Gloversville by then must have grown hoarse telling their daughter, we told you so. (laughs) Probably. The abandoned young lady quickly filed for divorce with respondent Porter being served in absentia, wherever that was. Mm Mm-hmm. And divorce was soon granted in November, after which she returned to being unattached, but much wiser. (laughs) In spite of his $700 loss to this cagey Buffalo bartender, Porter must have still had ample travel money, for he managed to stay ahead of the law. When someone, supposedly Porter, was apprehended the February 24th, 1903 Gloversville Daily Leader used heavy black ink for the headline, arrested in New Haven. Mm. Sparing details, 
Detectives met Porter on the street and arrested him. Porter's friends in Gloversville regret that he is in trouble, as they always found him to be a jovial, good-hearted fellow, and are still finding it hard to get a reason for his rash actions. But they wouldn't ever get a chance to ask him for what those reasons were, because two days later, the leader and other newspapers had to print a retraction, stating, The man arrested in New Haven was indeed Walter C. Porter, but it was not our Walter C. Porter. It was simply a case of mistaken identity. No further newspaper references to Gloversville's disappearing drummer appear. Like Waldo, police and detectives probably continued wondering for a long time, where's Walter? (laughs) Porter may indeed have begun a new life elsewhere, dancing to the tune of a different drum. There could be. Well, that is quite a story, uh, Peter. Again, it reminds me of Death of a Salesman. I mean, uh, Willie Loman, you know, maybe wasn't the most honorable person, it turned out, in his, on his trips, but I think he actually made money for the company. Yes, yes, he did. He brought some of it back. Um, it's interesting. He uh, Walter Porter, well, he was in the right um, field of sales. It seems like he was selling valuable stuff, get good yes. money for it. Yes, and actually, if you think of what money was really worth in those times, he was really was earning a decent, you know, if he got $1,200 from the one firm and, like, say, 2400 maybe from the other firm, he was making a good living. Yeah, but it he wanted more. Yeah. He had more. <laughs> he wanted to be loved. He wanted to be loved. <laughs> Walter Porter, the absconding drummer. We're talking with uh, Peter Betts about... Local history stories. Uh, Peter writes a column for the Leader Herald newspaper in uh, Gloversville. Well, we, we have about uh, six and a half minutes left of the of the program. Peter, not to be too specific about it, but uh, do you have a? You, you said you'd have some uh, f- what you call fillers. I think others probably call them fillers too. Um, if we ran short, we, we've now officially run short. Well, I'm going to speak very slowly (laughs) from now on. Yeah, every now and then in the process of researching, I get a, I'll find some little tasty tidbit here and there that you can't make a real story about, but, you know, you get a whole bunch of these together. And uh, I'm working on number six at the moment. And so far I I have a few of these things. Uh, the Daily Republican, that's the Gloversville paper, March 1st, 1894. Mm-hmm. Horatio Grant Sr. was found guilty of beating his wife yesterday, notwithstanding the efforts of Counselor Parker to make him out as simply a henpecked husband. The sentence was a $25 fine or 25 days in the county jail. Mr. Grant is now receiving his mail at the county jail. <laughs> okay. So he preferred prison to the to the fine. Yes, apparently. And on that very same date, uh, this is about the uh, fire horse. Of course, a fire truck was a nice thing, but they needed a horse to pull it, too, in those days. Mm-hmm. And the, the older horse in Gloversville was apparently named Jim. People that didn't know him that well called him James, but Uh anyway, Jim. Jim the horse. Yeah, it says, ever since the death of Jim, our first fire horse, people have been anxiously waiting the arrival of his successor. A horse named Tom 
has been in use for several weeks, but Tom is far too light for that work. Mm. He has just begun to learn the axe when he is put aside and a new animal will take his place. Wednesday, we said he had been expected daily, and today he has arrived. <laughs> he has no name, so we will simply call him Jim the Second. He is a large horse, standing over 16 hands high and weighing 1,365 pounds. Jim has never been trained as a fire horse, but we hope it will not be long before he becomes a full-fledged member of the department. <laughs> I, too, enjoy uh, looking at the old newspapers and the little things that you see, aside from what you're mainly looking at. I even like the some of the lines they used. For example, I was looking at some papers from the 19 aughts or 19 teens, and they, they had a, a series, apparently, its own little headline and a little picture of an automobile said, in autoist circles or something like that, or, or from the autoists. That's what they called the people that drove cars. Yes, it's very similar in the 1890s, of course. They, most papers had a column for bicycles. Oh! Because that was the big craze, you know. Yes, the bicycle. And, and in the early 1900s, it's, it's quite true. Uh, and the recorder, for example, in Amsterdam had a regular column on motoring. And there were motoring clubs. Uh, a lot of times people in the very early days, I don't know if they didn't trust their vehicles that much, but they would go out in groups rather than by themselves. Right, right. And take, take little convoy trips here and there. Yeah. And much later on in the, let's say, the Amsterdam recorder, uh, I remember they, they'd had this line in fraternal circles, you know, with the news of the Knights of Pythias and the Elks and the Moose and all the different organizations, many of which don't exist anymore. Some do, but not all of them. Well, I, well, I'd say a lot of them do, but not all of them. Yeah. Uh, and here we have one from the Fulton County Republican of 1908. Mm -hmm. This is Johnstown, the Johnstown page. People in the vicinity of Main and Market Streets have been startled by the clanging of a gong. Workmen employed by the Electric Bank Protection Company have been hard at work installing electric vault protection equipment on the People's Bank. Not all of the people living nearby, are pleased <laughs> by the testing of the gong. I'm not sure they're not. It's gong. And let's see, uh, in 1907, a man named Charles Blow, who was a candidate for Johnstown Alderman in Ward 3, in those days, as they do now, uh, all people that were candidates had to account for their election expenses. Okay. okay. Charles Blow accounted for his election expenses which amounted to $3 for printing and putting up posters. And he got elected. <laughs> well, well, you run for office these days, Peter. I don't think you spend much more than that. Well, the very first time I did, I had uh, uh, a bunch of signs. Of course, it's just for one town, so I don't need like 2,000 of them. But I think I had 100 of them put up. And uh, I, uh, I reused them. Uh, you know, periodically, but I only had to do it once. So, and you still use them? Well, I will this year. I'm up for re-election. I see. 
so far, nobody's had the good sense to run against me. I see. Well, the one thing I've, you know, when I used to do uh, daily radio, calling radio, people always complain after the election that the candidates didn't pick up their signs. I mean, did you pick up your signs, Peter, and did you do it yourself? Well, I absolutely did, and I not only picked up my signs, but in like recent elections we've had here, when I put some out for other candidates, I always retrieve all of them. You have to. It's it's just uh, unsightly to leave those things lying around. True. And I wonder, there must be some sort of uh, oh, ratio. Some of them must get destroyed during the campaign. You know well, I mean? some, of them, some of them, Bob, even get stolen, which is illegal. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, well when that happens, you just put up another one and hope it'll stay there a while. Yeah, if, if he could sell it, Walter Porter would probably grab a few of them. But <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Well, Peter, I thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Peter Betts on the Historian's Podcast. Read his column every other week. And what day of the week is it, Peter? Um, it's uh, it's uh, almost always on a Monday, unless they have too much, and then they put it in on a Tuesday. Right. It will be coming out this coming Monday. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudborn.